Chapter Eight of Their Yesterdays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Their Yesterdays by Harold Bell Wright. Chapter Eight, Life. In childhood, the master of life exalts life. A baby in its mother's arms is the fullest expression of divinity. It was Christmas time. That season of the year when, for a brief period, the world permits the children to occupy the place in the affairs and thoughts of men that is theirs by divine right. In the birth of that babe in Bethlehem, the giver of life placed the seal of his highest approval upon childhood and decreed that, until the end of time, babies should be the true rulers of mankind and the lawful heirs of heaven. And it is so that the power of Mary's babe, from his manger cradle throne, has been more potent on earth than the governments of men than the strength of many emperors with their armed hosts. It is written large in nature's laws that mankind should be governed by love of children. The ruling purpose and passion of the race can be, with safety, nothing less than the purpose and passion of all created things, of even the trees and plants, the purpose to reproduce its kind, the passion for its offspring. The world should be ruled by boys and girls. But mammon has usurped the throne of life. His hosts have trampled the banners of loyal love in the dust. His forces have compelled the rightful rulers of the world to abdicate. But, even as gross materialism has never succeeded in altogether denying divinity, so, for a few days each year, at Christmas time, childhood asserts its claims and compels mankind to render at least a show of homage. Poor, blind, deceived, and betrayed old world, to so fear a foolish and impotent anarchism that spends its strength in vain railings against governments, while you pay the highest honors and present your choicest favors to those traitors who filch your wealth of young life under pretense of loyal service. The real anarchists, old world, are not those who loudly vociferate to the rabble on the street corners, but those who, operating under the laws of your approval, betray their country in its greatest need, its need of children. The real anarchists, old world, are those whose banners are made red by the blood of babies, who fatten upon the labor of their child slaves, and who seek to rule by the slaughter of children even as that savage of old whose name in history is hated by every lover of the race. Regicides at heart they are, for they kill for a price the God-ordained rulers of mankind. A child is nearer by many years to God than the grown-up rebel who traitorously holds his own mean interest superior to the holy will of life as vested in the sacred person of a boy or girl. To prate, in empty swelling words, of the sacredness of life, the power of religion, the dignity of state, the importance of commercial interest in the natural wealth of the nation, while ignoring the sacredness, power, dignity, importance, and wealth of childhood, is evidence of a criminal thoughtlessness. Children and life are one. They are the product, the producers, and the preservers of life. They exalt life. They interpret life. Without them life has no meaning. The child is no more the possession of its parents than the parents are the property of the child. Children are the just creditors of the human race. Mankind owes them everything. They owe mankind nothing. A baby has no debts. Nor is the passion for children satisfied only in bearing them. A woman who does not love all babies is unsafe to trust with one of her own flesh. A man who does not love all children is unfit to father offspring of his own blood. One need not die to orphan a child. One need only refuse to care for it. One need only place other interests first. Men and women who desire to become parents will not go unsatisfied in a world that is so full of boys and girls, for whom there are neither fathers nor mothers. The master of life said, Except ye become as little children. His false disciple, world, teaches, 
except you become grown up. But the laws of life are irrevocable. If a man, heeding the world, grows up to possess the earth, his holdings at the last are reduced, if he be one of earth's big men, to six feet of it only, while the man who never grows up inherits a heaven that the false kings of earth know not. When the man left his work, at close of the day before Christmas, he was as eager as he had been that Saturday when he faced the crisis of his life. With every sense keenly alive, he plunged into the throng of belated shoppers that filled the streets and crowded into the gaily decked stores until it overflowed into the streets again. Nearly everyone was carrying bundles and packages, for it was too late now to depend upon the overworked delivery wagons. In almost every face the Christmas gladness shone. In nearly every voice there was that spirit of fellowship and cheery goodwill that is invoked by Christmas thoughts and plans. Through the struggling but good-natured crowd, the man worked his way into a store, and, when he forced his way out again, his arms, too, were full. For a moment he waited on the corner for a car, then, with a look of smiling dismay at the number of people who were also waiting, he turned away, determined to walk. He felt, too, that the exercise in the keen air would be a relief to the buoyant strength and gladness that clamored for expression. As he swung so easily along the snowy pavement, with the strength of his splendid manhood revealed in his every movement, and the cleanness of his heart and mind illuminating his countenance, there were many among those he met who, while they smiled in sympathy with the spirit, passed from their smiles to half-sighs of envy and regret. With the impatient haste of a boy, the man dashed up the steps of his boarding-house and ran upstairs to his room, chuckling in triumph over his escape from the watchful eyes of the little daughter of the house. For the first time since his boyhood, the man was to have the blessed privilege of sharing the Christmas cheer of a home. When the evening meal was over and it was time for his little playmate to go to sleep, he retired again to his room, almost as excited in his eager impatience for the morning as the child herself. Safe behind his closed door, he began to unwrap his Christmas packages and parcels, that he might inspect again his purchases and taste, by anticipation, the pleasure he would know when on the morrow the child would discover his gifts. Very carefully he cut the strings from the last and largest package and, tenderly removing the wrappings, revealed a doll almost as tall as the little girl herself. It was as large, at least, as a real flesh-and-blood baby. The wifeless, homeless man who has never purchased a doll for some little child-mother has missed an educational experience of more value than many of the things that are put in textbooks to make men wise. Rather awkwardly the man held the big doll in his arms, smoothing his dress and watching the eyes that opened and closed so lifelike. Cautiously he felt for and found that vital spot, which if pressed brought forth a startling, Papa! Mama. As the dear familiar words of childhood sounded in the lonely bachelor room, the man felt a queer something grip his heart. Tenderly he laid the doll upon his big bed and stood for a little looking down upon it, a half-serious, half-whimsical expression on his face, but in his eyes a tender light. Then, adjusting his reading lamp, he seated himself and attempted to busy his strangely disturbed mind with a book. But the sentences were meaningless. At every period, his eyes turned to that little figure on the bed, with its too lifelike face and hair and form, while the thoughts of the author he was trying to read were crowded out by other thoughts that forced themselves upon him, with the persistency and strength that would not be denied. The weeks following the testing of the man had been to him very wonderful weeks. He seemed to be living in a new world, or, rather, for him, the same old world was wonderfully enriched and glorified. Never had he felt his manhood's strength stirring so within him. Never had his mind been so alert, his spirit so bold. He moved among men with a new power that was felt by all who came in touch with him, though no one knew what it was. He was conscious of a fuller mastery of his work, a clearer grasp of the world's events. 
as one, climbing in the mountains, reaches a point higher than he has ever before attained, and gains thus a wider view of the path he has traveled, of the surrounding country, and of the peak that is the object of his climb as well. So this man, in his life climb, had reached a higher point, and therefore gained a wider outlook. It is only when men stay in the lowlands of self-interest, or abide in the swamps of self-indulgence, that their views of life are narrowly circumscribed. Let a man master himself but once, and he stands on higher ground, with wider outlook, with keener vision, and clearer atmosphere. The man had always seen life in its relation to himself. He came, now, to consider his own life in its relation to all life, which point of view has all the difference that lies between a low valley and the mountain peaks that shut it in. He felt his relation, too, not alone to all human life, but to all created things. With everything that lived he felt himself kin. With the very dray horses on the street, dragging with patient courage their heavily loaded trucks. With the stray dog that dodged in and out among the wheels and hoofs of the crowded traffic. Even with the sparrow that perched for a moment on the ledge outside the window near his desk, he felt a kinship that was new and strange. Had they not all, he reflected, horse and dog and sparrow and man, had they not all one thing in common? Life. Was not life the one thing supreme to each? Were they not, each one, a part of the whole? Was not the supreme object of every life, of all life, to live? Is the life of a man, he asked himself, more mysterious than the life of a horse? Can science, blind, pretentious, childish science, explain the life of a dog with less uncertainty than it can explain the life of a man? Or can the scientist make a laboratory sparrow more easily than he could produce a laboratory man? With the very trees that lined the streets near where he lived, he felt a kinship, for they too, within their trunks and limbs, had life. They too were parts of the whole, even as he was a part. They too belonged, even as he belonged. Thus the man saw life from a loftier height than he had ever before attained. Thus he sensed, as never before, the bigness, the fullness, the grandness, the awfulness of life. And so the man became very humble with a proud humbleness. He became very proud with a humble pride. He became even as a child again. And then, standing thus upon this new height that he had gained, the man looked back into the ages that were gone, and forward into the ages that were to come, and so saw himself and his age a link between the past and the future, linking that which had been to that which was to be. All that life had ever been, the sum of all since the unknown beginning, was in the present. In the present, also, was all that life could ever be, even unto the unknown end. Within his age and within himself he felt stirring all the mighty forces that, since the beginning, had wrought in the making of man. Within his age and within himself he felt the forces that would work out in the race result as far beyond his present vision as his age was beyond the ages of the most distant past. Since the day when he had first realized his manhood, the working out of his dreams had been to the man the supreme object of his life. He had put his life, literally, into his work. For his work he had lived. But that Christmas Eve, when his mind and heart were so filled with thoughts of childhood, and those new emotions were aroused within him, he saw that the supreme thing in his life must be life itself. He saw that not by putting his life into his work would he most truly live, but by making his work contribute to his life. He realized that the greatest achievements of man are but factors in life that the one, supreme, dominant, compelling purpose of life is to live, to live, to live, to express itself in life, that the only adequate expression of life is life, that the passion of life is to pass itself on, from age to age, from generation to generation, in a thousand, thousand forms, in a thousand, thousand ages, in a thousand, thousand peoples, 
Life had passed itself on, was even then passing itself on, seeking ever fuller expression of itself, seeking ever to perfect itself, seeking ever to produce itself. He saw that the things that men do come out of their lives even as the plants come out of the soil into which the seed is dropped, and that, even as the dead and decaying plant goes back into the earth from which it came, to enrich and renew the ground, so man's work, that comes out of his life, is reabsorbed again into his life to enrich and renew it. He realized now that the object of his life must not be his work, but life itself, that his effort must be not to do, but to be, that he must accomplish not a great work, but a great life. It was inevitable that the man should come to see, also, that the supreme glory of his manhood's strength was in this, the reproduction of his kind. The man-life that ran so strongly in his veins, that throbbed so exultantly in his splendid body, that thrilled so keenly in his nerves. The man-life that he had from his parents and from countless generations before. The life that made him kin to all his race and to all created things. This life he must pass on. This was the supreme glory of his manhood, that he could pass it on, that he could give it to the ages that were to come. From the heights which he attained that Christmas Eve, the man laughed at the empty, swelling words of those who talk about the sacredness of work, who prattle as children about leaving a great work when they are gone, who gibber as fools about contributing a great work to the world. If the men of a race will perfect the manhood strength of the race, if they will exalt their manhood power, if they will fulfill the mission of life by perfecting and producing ever more perfect lives, if they will endeavor to contribute to the ages to become stronger, better men than themselves, why, the work of the world will be done, even as the plant produces its flowers and fruit, the work of the world will be done. In the exaltation of life is the remedy for the evils that threaten the race. The reformations that men are always attempting in the social, religious, political, and industrial world are but attempts to change the flavor or quality of the fruit when it is ripening on the tree. The true remedy lies in the life of the tree, in the soil from which it springs, in the source from which the fruit derives its quality and flavor, in the appreciation of life in the passion of life, in the production of life, in the perfection of life, in the exaltation of life, is the salvation of humankind. For this and this alone man has right to live, has right to his place and part in life. All this the man saw that Christmas Eve because the kiss of the little girl, on that night of his temptation, had awakened something in his manhood that was greater than the dreams he had been denying himself to work out. The friendship of the child had revealed to him this deeper truth of life, that there are, for all true men, accomplishments greater than the rewards of labor. The baby had taught him that the legitimate fruit of love is more precious to life, by far, than the wealth and honors that the world bestows, that, indeed, the greatest wealth, the highest honors, are not in the power of the world to give, nor are they to be won by toil. In his thinking, this man, too, was led by a little child. The man's thoughts were interrupted by a knock at his door. It was the little girl's mother to tell him, as she had promised, that the child was safely asleep. With his arms filled with presents, the man went softly down the stairs. When all had been arranged for the morning, the man returned again to his room, but not to sleep. There was in his heart a feeling of reverent pride and gladness, as though he had been permitted to assist in a religious rite, and, with his own hands, to place an offering upon a sacred altar. And, if you will understand me, the man was right. Whatever else Christmas has come to mean to the grown-up world, its true meaning can be nothing less than this. Nor did the man again turn to his book, or attempt to take up the train of thought that had so interfered with his reading. Something more compelling than any printed page, something more insistent than his thoughts of life and its meaning, 
lured him far away from his grown-up days, took him back again into his days that were gone. Alone in his room that Christmas Eve, the man went back once more to his yesterdays, back to a Christmas in his yesterdays. Once again his boyhood home was the scene of busy preparations for the Christmas gaieties. Once again the boy, tucked snugly under the buffalo robe, drove with his parents away through the white fields to the distant town, while the music in his heart kept time to the melody of the jingling bells. Once again he experienced the happy perplexity of selecting, with mother's help, a present for father, while father obligingly went to see a man on business and of choosing, with father's assistance, a gift for mother while she rested in a far corner of the store. And then, once again, he faced the trying question. What should he get for the little girl who lived next door? What indeed could he get for her but a beautiful new doll, one with brown hair, very like the little girl's own, and brown eyes that opened and closed as natural as life? The next day the boy went, with his father and the little girl and her uncle, in the big sleigh, to the woods to find a tree for the Christmas exercises at the church. And, in the afternoon, in company with the older people, helped make the wreaths of evergreen and deck the tree with glittering tinsel, while the little girl strung long strings of snowy popcorn and labored earnestly at the sweet task of filling mosquito-bar stockings with candy and nuts. Then came that triumphant Christmas Eve when, before the assembled Sunday school in the crowded church, the boy took part with his class in the entertainment and sat, with wildly beating heart, while the little girl, all alone, sang a Christmas carol. And proud he was indeed, when the applause for the little singer was so long and loud. And then, when the farmer Santa Claus had distributed the last stocking of candy, the boy and the girl, with their elders, went home together, in the clear light of the stars, while across the white fields came the sound of gay laughter and happy voices, mingled with the ringing music of the sleigh bells, growing fainter and fainter, as friends and neighbors went their several ways. But best of all, by far the best of all, was that Christmas morning at home. At the first hint of gray light in the winter sky, the boy was awakened out of bed to gather his Christmas harvest, hailing each toy and game and book with exclamations of delight, and arousing all the house with the shouts of, "'Merry Christmas!' The foolish, grown-up old world has a saying that we value most the things that we win for ourselves by toil and hardship, but, believe me, it is not so. The real treasures of earth are the things that are won by the toil of those who bring to us, without price, the fruits of their labor as tokens of their love. Very early, that long-ago Christmas morning, the boy went over to the little girl's house, for his happiness would not be complete until he could share it with her. And the man, who, alone in his bachelor room that Christmas Eve, dreamed of his yesterdays, saw again, with startling clearness, his boyhood mate as she stood in the doorway greeting him with shouts of, Merry Christmas! as he went toward her through the snow. And the heart of the man beat quicker at the lovely vision, even as the heart of the boy, for she held close in her little mother arms, the new addition to her family of dolls, his gift. The lonely man that night realized, as he had never realized before, how full, at that moment, was the cup of the boy's proud happiness. He realized and understood. I wonder, do you also understand? In the still house the big clock in the lower hall struck the hour. The man in his lonely room listened, counting the strokes. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve. It was Christmas. And the woman also, when she had passed safely through her trial, looked out upon life from a point higher than she had ever reached before. Never before had life to her looked so wide. But the woman did not feel stronger after the crisis through which she had passed. 
she felt more keenly than before her weakness. More than ever she felt the need of a strength that she could not find within herself. More than ever she was afraid of the life that, from where she now stood, seemed so wide. Nor did she feel kinship with all life. She stood on higher ground, indeed, but the wideness of the view, to her, only emphasized her loneliness. She sadly felt herself as one apart, as one denied the right of fellowship. More keenly than ever before she felt in the heart of her womanhood the humiliation of the life that sets a price upon the things of womanhood, while it refuses to recognize womanhood itself. More than ever, in her woman heart, she was ashamed. Neither could she feel that she was doing her part in life, that she was taking her place, that she was a link joining the ages of the past to the ages that would come. She felt herself, rather, a parasite, attached to life, not a part of, not belonging to, but feeding upon. This woman who knew herself to be a woman saw, more clearly than ever before, that one thing only could give her full fellowship with the race. She saw that one thing only could make her a link between the ages that were gone and the ages that were to come. That one thing only could satisfy her woman heart, could make her feel that she was not alone. That one thing which the woman recognizes supreme is the thing which the master of life has committed peculiarly to womanhood. Not to woman's skillful hands, not to her ready brain, not to the things of her womanhood, upon which the world into which she goes alone to labor puts a price, has the master of life committed the supreme thing, but to her womanhood, her sex. In the womanhood that is denied by the world that receives womankind alone, is wealth that may not be bought by any price that the world can pay. In the womanhood of women is that supreme thing without which human life would perish from the earth. The exercise of this power alone can give to woman the high place in life that belongs to her by right divine. The woman saw that, for her, all other work in the world would be but a makeshift, a substitute. And because of this, while life had never before seemed so large, she had never before felt so small, so useless. But still, for the woman, there was peace in her loneliness. There was a peace that she had not had before. There was a calmness, a quietness that was not hers before her trial. It was the peace of the lonely mountaintop to which one climbs from out of a noisy, clamoring village. The calmness of the deep sky and crossed by cloud or marked by smoke of human industry. The quietness of the wide prairie, untouched by man's improvements. And this tranquil rest was hers because she knew, deep in her woman's heart she knew, that she had done well, that she had not been untrue to the soul of her womanhood. The woman knew that she had done well because she came to understand that, while life is placed peculiarly in the care and keeping of her sex, her sex has been endowed for the protection, perfection, and perpetuation of life with peculiar instincts. She had come to understand that, while woman has been made the giver and guardian of life, she, for that reason, is subject to laws that are not to be broken save with immeasurable loss to the race. To her sex is given, by life itself, the divine right of selection that the future of the race may be assured. To her sex is given an instinct superior to reason, that her choice may perfect humankind. For her, and for the life of her kind, there is a law that if she permits aught but her woman instinct to influence her in selecting her mate, her children and the children of her children shall mourn. In the crisis of her life the woman had heard many voices, bold and tempting, pleading and subtle, urging her to say yes. But always her instinct, her woman heart, had whispered, No, this man is not your mate. This is not the man you would choose to be the father of your children. Better, far better, contribute nothing to the race than break the law of your womanhood. 
Better, far better, never cross the threshold of that open door than cross it with one who, in your heart of hearts, you know not to be the right one. So the woman had peace. Even in her loneliness she had peace, knowing that she had done well. And the woman tried now to interest herself in the things that so many of the women of her day seemed to find so interesting. She listened to brave lectures by stalwart women on woman's place and sphere in the world's work. She heard bold talks by militant women about women's emancipation and freedom. She attended lectures by intellectual women on the higher life and the new thought and the advanced ideas. She read pamphlets and books written by modern women on the work of women in the social, political, and industrial fields. She became acquainted with many new women who, striving mightily with all their strength and body and soul for careers, looked with a kind of lofty disdain or pitying contempt upon those old-fashioned mothers whose children interfere with the duty that new women think they owe the world. But this woman, who knew herself to be a woman, could not interest herself in these things to which she tried to give attention. She felt that in giving herself to these things she would betray life. She felt the hollowness, the shallowness, the emptiness of it all, in comparison with that which is divinely committed to womankind. She could not but wonder, what would be the racial outcome? When women have long enough substituted other ideals for the ideals of motherhood, other passions for the passions of their sex, other ambitions for the ambition to produce and to perfect life, other desires for the desire to keep that which life has committed to them. What then? How, she asked herself, would the world get along without mothers? Or how could the race advance if the best of women refused to bear children? And then came the inevitable thought, are the best women, after all, refusing to bear children? Might it not be that the wisdom of Mother Nature is in this also? and that the refusal of a woman to bear children is the best evidence in the world that she is unfit to be a mother? Is it not better that the mothers of the race should be those who hold no ideal, ambition, desire, aim, or purpose in life higher than motherhood? Such women, such mothers, have thus far, through their sons and daughters, won every victory in life. It is they who have made every advance of the race possible. Will it not continue to be so, even unto the end? Is not this indeed the law of life? If there be any work for women greater or of more value to the race and the work of motherhood, then, indeed, is the end of the world for mankind at hand. From where she lay, the woman, when she first awoke that Christmas morning, could see the sun just touching the topmost branches of the tall trees that grew across the street. It was a beautiful day, but the woman did not at first remember that it was Christmas. Idly, as one sometimes will when awakening out of a deep sleep, she looked at the sunshine on the trees, and thought that the day promised to be clear and bright. Then, looking at the clock in the chubby arms of the fat cupid on the mantel, she noticed the time with a start of dismay. She must arise at once, or she would be late to her work. Why, she wondered, had not someone called her? Then, a crumpled sheet of tissue paper and a bit of narrow ribbon on the floor, near the table, caught her eye, and she remembered. It was Christmas. The woman dropped back upon her pillow. She need not go to work that day. She had not been called because it was a holiday. Dully, she told herself again that it was Christmas. The house was very quiet. There were no bare feet pattering down the hall to see what Santa Claus had left from his pack. No exulting shouts had awakened her. In the rooms below, there was no cheerful litter of toys and games and popcorn and candy and nuts with bits of string and crumpled paper from hastily opened parcels and shining scraps of tinsel from the tree. There were no stockings hanging on the mantel. At breakfast, there would be a few friendly gifts, and later, the postman would bring letters and cards with the season's greetings. That was all. 
The sun climbing higher above the tall buildings downtown peeped through the window and saw the woman lying very still. And the sun must have thought that the woman was asleep, for her eyes were closed, and upon her face there was the wistful smile of a child. But the woman was not asleep, though she was dreaming. She had escaped from the silent, childless house and had fled far, far away to the land of golden memories. She had gone back into her yesterdays, to a Christmas in her yesterdays. Once again a little girl, she lived those happy, busy days of preparation, when she had asked herself a thousand times each day, what would the boy give her for Christmas? And always, as she wondered, the little girl had tried not to wish that it would be a doll, lest she would be disappointed. And always she was unable to wish, half so earnestly, for anything else. Again she spent the hours learning the song that she was to sing at the church on Christmas Eve, and wondered often if he would like her new dress that Mother was making for the occasion. And then, as the day drew near, there was that merry trip to the woods to bring the tree, followed by that afternoon at the church. The little girl wondered, that night of the entertainment, if the boy guessed how frightened she was for him, lest he forget the words of his part, or, when she was singing before the crowd of people that filled the church, did he know that she saw only him, and then the triumph, the beautiful triumph of that Christmas morning. The little girl in the yesterdays needed no one to remind her what day it was. As soon as it was light, she opened her eyes, and wide awake in an instant, slipped from her bed to steal downstairs while the rest of the household slept. And there, in the gray of the winter morning, she found his gift. It was so beautiful, so lifelike, with its rosy cheeks and brown hair, that, almost, the little girl was afraid that she was not awake at all. And she caught her breath with a gasp of delight when she finally convinced herself that it was real. She knew that it was from the boy. She knew. Quickly she clasped it in her arms, with a kiss and a mother hug, and then, back again, she ran to her warm bed, lest Dolly catch cold. The other presents could wait until it was really, truly daylight, and Uncle had made a fire, and she drew the covers carefully up under the dimpled chin of her treasure that lay in the hollow of her arm, close to her own soft little breast, as natural as life, as natural, indeed, as the mother life that throbbed in the heart of the little girl. For women also it is written, except you become as little children. If only women would understand— all the other gifts of that Christmas were as nothing to the little girl beside that gift from the boy. The other things she would enjoy all the more because the supreme wish of her heart had been granted. But, had she been disappointed in that, all else would have had little power to please. Under all her Christmas pleasure there would have been a longing for something more. Her Christmas would not have been satisfied. Her cup of happiness would not have been full. So, all the treasures that the world can lay at woman's feet will never satisfy if the one gift be lacking. And that woman who has felt in her arms a tiny form molded of her own flesh, who has drawn close to her breast a soft little cheek, and felt upon her neck the touch of a baby hand. That woman knows that I put down the truth, when I write that those women who deny the mother instinct of their hearts, and, for social position, pleasure, public notice, wealth, or fame, kill their love for children, are to be pitied above all creatures, for they deny themselves the heaven that is their inheritance. Eagerly that morning, the little girl watched for the coming of the boy, for she knew that he would not long delay, and, when she saw him wading through the snow, flung open wide the door to shout her greeting, as she proudly held his gift close to her heart, while on her face and in her eyes was the light divine. And great fun they had, that Christmas day, with their toys and games and books. But never for long was the new doll far from the little girl's arms. Nor did she need many words to make her happiness in this gift understood to the boy. The sun was shining full in the window now, 
quite determined that the woman should sleep no longer. Regretfully, as one who has little heart for the day, she arose just as footsteps sounded outside her door. There came a sharp rap upon the panel, and, "'Merry Christmas!' called her uncle's hearty voice. Bravely, the woman who knew herself to be a woman answered, "'Merry Christmas!' End of chapter 8